This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. The terrorist attack in San Bernardino with uh, two active shooters turned into a high-tech case when the phone of one of the shooters was obtained by police, but they could not open it because of encryption. This turned into a legal battle between the state and Apple, the creator of the phone, who were asked and refused to give access to the phone and to the information on it. This has inspired a lot of research and a lot of discussion about what rights we have uh, as users uh, for encryption, for password protection, and how it can be circumvented in the case of uh, criminal offenses. And today we're talking about this with our guest. Hi, I'm uh, Amos Eitan, advocate at the Israeli Cybercrime Department in the Israeli State Attorney's Office. What uh, principles have been suggested to uh, help with this uh, problem that is not a one-time thing, but going to be more and more um, ubiquitous with uh, encryption uh, going mainstream? So what the San Bernardino case taught us is that this problem is not, as you said, a one-time thing. It's a, it's a problem and it's here to stay. In our research, we try to find out different methods of dealing with the problem, different models, as we call them in our research, in different ways to, to tackle the problem. We found a few different, uh, different models in, in this issue, in this, in this regard. Not all of them technological, mostly from a legal point of view. I wrote this paper with Dr. Chaim Wismonski, the manager of the cybercrime department in the Israeli State Attorney's Office. First of all, we, we tried to draw inspiration from different things that happened around the world and different uh, scholars wrote about. The first thing we thought of was basically just ignoring the privilege against self-incrimination, which, which stands in the middle of this, of this legal debate. And as the UK have done and Australia have done and New Zealand recently as well, just give the authority to a policeman to order the suspect to give his password. And if he refuses, that's a criminal offense, and that's about it. It's like uh, refusing to take a breathalyzer test uh, when you're um, arrested for suspected drunk driving. Once you refuse, you're considered guilty. Exactly the same. We thought this solution is quite extreme. It may raise a lot of difficulties regarding the privilege against self-incrimination. And also, you could have somebody who's suspected in a high crime be convicted just because they value their privacy. And they could be martyred as fighters for freedom of speech and freedom of privacy, and they might not even be guilty of the crime. Yeah, well, in the UK, for example, the, the offense that the, the, the suspect is convicted for after refusing to give his passport is not the offense that he was originally investigated for, but an offense by not uh, providing the passport, which is a separate individual offense. It's not only a password, though. It's also uh, give us your fingerprint, give us your, exactly. uh, uh, let, let us scan your retina. It's like, a, uh, it's not a breathalyzer. It's more like a blood test. We identified five different kinds of technologies that are in the, in the middle of this debate. The first one is a character code, which is like an American or an alphabetical uh, code, which is we're familiar with. The second one is, is, is a fingerprint, face recognition, voice recognition as well. And the fifth one, which is not uh, yet in use, but starting to be written uh, upon in, in different uh, issues is using dozens of biometrical characteristics like the width of your finger, like the angle in which you hold your phone. For example, the phone can recognize if the person that's now holding the phone is the owner or not. These are the five uh, different technologies that we, we identified. What about mind control? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. All you uh, ESP people uh, out there, you're safe <laughs> for now. There's another uh, approach used in Israel currently. 
Yeah, well, up until now, Israeli law enforcement agencies have regarded the uh, privilege against self-incrimination as an absolute privilege. A good example for that is the Fisher trial, uh, which is still uh, going on. One of the main suspects uh, had his uh, phone under uh, password protection, and he um, claimed that he forgot the password to his phone, so the police could not view uh, what's going on in the phone, even though the police had a, a judicial warrant that allowed them access to the contents of the phone. Yeah, but you can say that you forgot what you saw um, when you witness a crime or something like that. This is, uh, I, I'm guessing, contempt. Well, the thing is that, again, up until now, the Israeli judicial system did not view this thing as, as contempt, but as, a, as an expression of your uh, privilege against self-incrimination. Uh, this is a thing that's, that seems, I would say, odd to us. And this is why we, we went on our way to find a solution to, to the problem, while still differentiating between suspects or witnesses for that, uh, for that case that actually forgot their uh, password or decryption key and suspects that use this as an excuse. If the password is something that the vendor can provide, a suspect that forgets the password can give you permission to ask for it uh, from the vendor. Yeah, well, the, the problem here is that most of the of the companies do not keep the password. And even if they do keep the password, I think that the uh, disadvantages when asking, for example, Facebook or Gmail uh, from uh, suspects' passwords are bigger than the advantages. First of all, Apple, for example, or, or Google, for example, they have a, a loyalty um, uh, duty to the customers. And this is important to keep and this is important to not, not to infringe upon. So you're saying I'd rather deal with one suspected criminal than break uh, something in the company itself and, and uh, possibly potentially harm other users. Exactly. This arises again, the question of a universal backdoor at the source code of Apple, for example. We think it's uh, a solution that has more disadvantages than advantages, basically. So what are you suggesting? First of all, we think that anytime a police unit wants to gain access to a phone, it should be done based on a judicial warrant. This is already in, in existing uh, Israeli legislation. But additionally, we think that the police unit should ask for another judicial warrant specifically regarding the question of password and encryption and asking the court to force the suspect to provide the police with his password. This can be done only when times that the device is lawfully obtained, when a police unit has a lawful judicial warrant to access the, the contents of the device. This is a good time to, to stress the fact that the Israeli legislation orders the police unit to ask for a warrant only that is proportionate to, to the suspicions that are in the center of the legation. For example, if one is a suspect for possession of child pornography, the law uh, obliges the uh, police uh, unit to ask not for a, a warrant that will enable them to view the whole phone, but just, for example, pictures and videos and what uh, in specific areas in the phone that the police believes that the suspect holds child pornography. Like uh, a browser or specific uh, application. Exactly. Uh, not not a wide uh, net search. Exactly. Let's for, say, for example, that the police presumes that you have uh, committed the offenses uh, only in the past uh, two months. There's no reason for the police to view what you did on your phone a year ago or two years ago. But we don't have the uh, poison fruit doctrine in Israel. Well, that's correct. Uh, but after the Issa Schauf uh, case in the Israeli Supreme Court, the Israeli Supreme Court developed an Israeli doctrine, let's say, 
regarding uh, what happens when the police uh, violates the suspect's rights for due process. And in your suggestion, when the suspect is asked for the password and refuses to give it, or the password, or the fingerprint, or whatever, what happens then? So we think there are three different consequences to the refusal. First one is that the refusal in itself is an offense. We have not decided or we have not written what we think should be the, the punish for that offense. That can be left for future deliberations. But this should be considered as, as an offense and as a contempt of court following a fine that will be set upon the, the suspect. The second issue is that we think that the refusal should be considered as reinforcing uh, the prosecution's evidence regarding the the original offense that the suspect has been investigated for. So if I refuse to give you the password, it's a signal uh, saying that I might be guilty of something. We think this is indeed a signal. It not necessarily suggests that you are guilty in the in the original offense, but it, it does suggest that you have something to hide. And that this something to hide is, is very important to you in the sense that you are willing to take upon yourself a criminal conviction in order not to reveal this content. So the third uh, consequence we, we believe that should be taking place is that in cases where reasonable force is available, is plausible, let's say, for example, that it's a fingerprint protection or face recognition protection, so the police should be able to use reasonable force in order to unlock the phone. So you're talking about brute force, but, but literal brute force, not the brute force that is used to, to hack uh, uh, passwords, but brute force in like taking the suspect's finger and putting it on the phone exactly. uh, um, forcefully. Exactly. It will be uh, good to mention here that the ability to use force in order to take a suspect's finger is already in, in Israeli legislation, only in different regards. For example, uh, when, you, when you're questioned in a police station, and you refuse to give your, your fingerprints for identification, a police officer may use reasonable force. So we think that the same logic may apply here. This could prove uh, problematic in the future, maybe the far future, maybe the near future, where we will have digital and technological enhancements to our um, mind. Let's say we have a, a computer that's connected to our mind and does uh, calculations for us or searches. I'm talking about something like Siri, but that's embedded in your brain. How far ahead are you thinking of uh, such consequences like uh, sci-fi or cyberpunk possible futures? Well, to be honest, this is a really interesting issue, but we haven't thought about that uh, uh, yet. The thing about cyber technology embedded in your brain is is really interesting and it should be maybe left for future research. Amos Eitan, thank you very much. Thank you. In recent years, we're hearing more and more spy agencies and law enforcement uh, claiming that they're going dark uh, or blind. They're talking about encryption, which makes it harder, sometimes impossible, for them to read and analyze uh, communications between bad actors. The problem is aggravated due to the push of end-to-end -end encryption into mainstream communication tools such as WhatsApp. And as a result of that, a lot of countries are trying to impose decryption mandates, uh, meaning putting back doors into encrypted messaging services uh, so that uh, uh, the government has uh, a way to peek in. We're talking about that with our next guest. Hi, I'm Jennifer Daskal. I am a professor of law at American University, Washington College of Law, where I am also a director of a tech law and security program. 
When did this wave of pushback against encryption start? So the question of the so-called problem of going dark has been an issue that, um, at least in the U.S. government, um, has been of concern to national security officials for quite some time. And there's been kind of fits and starts of various efforts to try to think through or push various mandates um, that would require decryption. Um, there's... That kind of has, at least in the U.S. side, that died down for a while, partially because of a recognition of the security costs of doing something like that. Um, but there has been kind of a recent push again with the current Department of Justice and um, some support among the Hill as well. Was it motivated by um, terrorism, by crime, or by the feeling that the government, the, the state is losing control? Of communications so I don't think there's one single causal factor um, the current push again at least in the United States is very much focused on concerns about child porn and um, risks or, or claims that encryption is making it harder to effectively fight both child porn and sex trafficking online I think the In evaluating some of those claims it's worth raising a whole host of questions I mean probably the first important one is certainly encryption makes it more challenging for law enforcement to get access to information of interest but then the key question is whether the benefit of what's being asked outweighs cost and here I think it's worth noting that you There's often kind of an untested assumption that the encrypted data that's being sought by law enforcement or intelligence agencies is the key, kind of the golden key to achieving the national security goal. And I think it's worth questioning that on a number of different fronts. I mean, first, even when communications are encrypted, uh, it's often possible for law enforcement to get access to a whole um, host of metadata, which can provide a lot of information about the where somebody is and, and a whole host of other information that can be used to effectively um, track individuals of interest. And then the other piece of that is this assumption that um, there's, there's a kind of an implicit assumption that all other avenues of investigation have been exhausted. And I think it's also worth questioning that. I was um, the co-author of a report that came out in May of 2018 called Low Hanging Fruit. digital-based solutions to the digital evidence divide. And in that report, which I did in conjunction with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., we did, among other things, a survey of state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies about the challenges that they faced in accessing and using digital evidence. We found that most law enforcement's primary concern was not necessarily encryption, but it was just knowing which provider to go to to seek information of concern and then how to analyze and assess what had been returned even when it wasn't encrypted. And so that suggests that there's a whole lot of work to be done um, in helping law enforcement more effectively use the information and evidence that is available before going down the road of mandating some sort of um, 
decryption regime. We recently saw a huge uh, expose in the Washington Post called The Intelligence Coup of the Century, uh, which uh, said that uh, the CIA uh, has been reading um, encrypted communications of both adversaries and allies for decades after pushing secretly backdoored uh, encryption to uh, companies and governments. Is it possible at all to well, insert a backdoor without compromising security of innocent people and without risking that this, this absolute power will corrupt absolutely? That is the, the million-dollar question. So the, when I was talking before about do the benefits outweigh the cost, the risk is, is that if either companies themselves are mandated to um, maintain some basically weigh into their products or if there's particularly if there's some mandate with respect to what's known as data in motion that's data that's being transmitted across the wires for example um, there is a significant risk and and I think most cryptologists agree at least with respect to data in motion that there's at least currently no way to do that without making all All of those communications more vulnerable and we live in a world in which there is um, a fair amount of hacking there's a fair amount of malicious foreign interference there's a fair amount of all kinds of concerning actors and actions online um, that um, are being perpetuated by nefarious actors and if there's a requirement that communications are made less secure and That affects everybody's security. Um, and so that that is a huge concern. I think number one most important step is to help facilitate the ability of law enforcement to access information and evidence that's not encrypted. And I think before we go down the road of mandating decryption, there's a lot of work to be done on that front first. And that includes everything from helping to improve and facilitate the process for getting access to data across borders which continues to be a significant challenge um, it includes helping law enforcement um, know which providers to go to to ask for evidence and ensuring that there's um, transparent clear processes in place to enable law enforcement to make those requests consistent with civil liberties and the rule of law. Um, and then there's a lot of work to be done in helping law enforcement analyze and interpret information that gets that they receive back even non-encrypted information so that's a key step that's not gonna completely solve the problem um, that said I think we also have kind of fallen into this assumption that law enforcement can and should um, be able to get access to everything that they want and that's really never been the case um, and so the question is then what is the right balance here and what are the costs of doing mandating some of the decryption regimes that have been considered or being proposed and here too I think it's worth considering both the security costs to everybody if our systems are more vulnerable to attack and then also the question about what What kinds of crimes does this really will this most likely enable law enforcement to solve? Because the reality is that sophisticated users of our digital communication systems are likely almost certainly able to continue to find tools and systems that enable them to communicate um, in some sort of um, hidden or decry or encrypted manner. So even if 
a range of companies prohibit or mandate decryption, there will continue to be the dark web or other entities operating elsewhere that provide kind of a safe haven for nefarious actors. And often those companies, those entities will be out of the jurisdiction of the very law enforcement agencies that are trying to better facilitate access to criminals. So law doesn't affect them? It's not that the rules in the law doesn't affect them, but if they're using um, companies that are in a lawless zone or in a place where it's not even clear where they operate, there's no, there's no jurisdiction to demand access. Or creating their own encryption tools. Exactly. Then it becomes even harder to um, access information about some of the most nefarious actors. So I think all of these costs have to be considered before going down this road. And then there's also the international cost. So when we talk about, you know, you can maybe presume that a range of rule of law following Western countries or a range of democratic countries can find some way of mandating that companies that operate within their jurisdiction ensure some sort of lawful access. But these same rules and regimes also then get applied by a range of other countries that might not be so law-abiding. And I think it's also important to consider the effects on dissidents, on a range of human rights activists, a range of other actors as well. Professor Jennifer Daskoff, thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. End-to-end encryption is supposed to protect us, protect our privacy, to allow us to speak without fear of being listened to and uh, have a chilling effect on what we said. Encryption is also naturally utilized by bad elements who want to use it to avoid being detected by law enforcement. And this makes encryption uh, the state's problem. We'll talk about that with our guest. I'm Stuart Baker. I'm a lawyer from Washington, D.C., but uh, uh, I have uh, served in government both at the National Security Agency and the Department of Homeland Security and on intelligence matters for many years. Uh, And I have a podcast of my own, the CyberLaw podcast, where we've talked about these issues for about five years. What is your thesis? Governments have always hated uh, the idea that perfect end-to-end encryption that can't be broken um, will become widespread uh, and a matter of commercial uh, standard uh, practice. They used to be able to get a warrant to conduct uh, an intercept of communications by phone uh, between uh, two parties. Now they can get the warrant, but they can't hear what the parties are saying. They can't read the messages. uh, And that they call going dark. So in the past... uh we, the users, were protected by law because you had to have a warrant to um, get our information. And now we're protected by technology and by math. Yes. Uh, you're not, well, you're, you're overprotected is what the governments believe. Uh, uh, they would say you're still protected by warrants, but when we get a warrant, we can't actually listen to the, your communication. And that means that uh, uh, gradually criminals will come to exploit this in new and very troubling ways. How big of a problem is it really? So it's becoming much more of a problem uh, until it became widespread commercially, uh, until it became standard practice for Google and Facebook and other parties to um, encrypt everything. Uh, much because of the uh, Snowden it was a, uh, revelations. was a response to Snowden. They got angry at uh, the National Security Agency and said, we'll fix you. And they 
put in encryption in many places. Uh, they may have been aiming at the National Security Agency, but they hit governments everywhere in the world. Uh, um, but the uh, one example that the Attorney General gave recently, he said there was a WhatsApp group uh, devoted to cartel members talking about plans to kill Mexican police officers. They killed hundreds of Mexican police officers uh, uh, using this group to coordinate their activities. Um, none of those activities could be found by looking at the WhatsApp communications because they were perfectly encrypted. Uh, wasn't the metadata uh, enough to uh, to learn of the uh, the existence? You could the existence could, and the hierarchy. You could and... see that there was a group. I think, uh, but you couldn't see what they were talking about. And so when, as they were planning their crimes, you could not uh, anticipate the crimes. You could not put uh, particular police officers in protection and you couldn't arrest people afterwards because they didn't know whether they were talking about cooking recipes or killing cops. What has law enforcement tried to do to overcome this uh, new uh, worrying problem? So there are two approaches. One is to see if they can't hack the phones of the people who they suspect of crimes. And uh, uh, that's something, actually, that's been very good uh, for certain Israeli companies that have uh, demonstrated an ability to hack phones. Uh, but that's a one-by-one -one effort, one phone at a time. And isn't, can, isn't that fine? Because you don't have to have the ability as law enforcement to listen to all the phones. You, you have to listen have to, to listen. specific phones. Right. This but is what might, you would do when you wiretapped lines. But you might have an ability to identify one person who you believe to be a criminal, but you might not necessarily be able to tell who else is in the group and to get access to their communications. And once you get access to their communications, they know you're uh, right. investigating That's them. That's right. Uh, so, whereas in uh, wiretapping, uh, this is something that it's is all, clandestine. It's all silent. That's right. Uh, the other problem with that solution is that it is inherently fragile because, of course, the companies are devoting enormous efforts to defeating the hackers who get access to the phones. Uh, they would not say that they're devoting enormous resources to defeating law enforcement, but as a practical matter, that's what it turns out they are doing. And so any access you get is inherently time-limited, um, and that means that uh, next week you might not be able to break uh, a uh, criminal gang that you can break today. One solution is, is to uh, hack the phones, and the other solution is the one that uh, governments are creeping up on, which is to regulate uh, the use of commercial encryption to say if you're offering these commercial solutions uh, that have encryption, you need to be able to find a way to open up encrypted communications when we have a warrant, when we have uh, probable cause to believe that the person who's using the encryption is a criminal. When you look at it like this, this is like saying, okay, you have a warrant today that you can uh, use to wiretap a specific phone, mm -hmm. and the same warrant or a similar warrant can be uh, used to tap encrypted uh, information, encrypted uh, communications, and that's fair because it's the same. It's the same thing, just with different technologies. The problem is, or the question is, can companies, can uh, commercial companies, really create encryption that is only accessible to specific elements without endangering the integrity of the encryption for the rest of the users. That's the heart of the argument. The, the um, people who don't want to see this regulation have said there's, not, there's no possible way that a system can be designed that would allow access on demand without creating a security hole in the system. Um, that argument is okay. It's 
probably not completely compelling. Yes, it, it does create risks for sure. Uh, but when it's their business, companies are quite happy to create those holes uh, in their own interest and to say, yes, we recognize we've created a bit of a security hole, but we can protect against abuses. And uh, the best example is updates that they send to your phone. They're constantly sending updates to your phone. You have no idea what those updates do. They could they change that. They, they could break encryption. Yes, they could. They could install something that says, tell him he's encrypted, but he's not. And the codes that they use to ensure that the updates they're sending to your phone only go to the, the phone they're supposed to and can't be used by bad guys to send the wrong code to those uh, uh, phones. Uh, they protect that in a wide variety of ways to make sure that no one other than a few authorized employees has access to the, the mechanism. That is a security hole, but it's one that has not produced any serious problems or access problems or abuses. That we know of. That we know of. Um, and when you ask a company, why did you create this hole? They would say, well, on balance, we've created a hole. It's a risk, but the risk of not updating our software is much greater. And so we have to balance social good that providing updates against the risk of harm from exposure of our mechanisms for updating the phones. And what governments are saying is that's exactly the balancing you should be doing for us. It's not your business interest that is being served by uh, the mandates we're proposing, but it's the interest in all of us, uh, of all of us in trying to avoid crime or solve crime. And that balance should be done just as the balance of your business interest against the risk that you expose your your customers to. Um, for uh, commercial reasons. Yeah, for commercial reasons. So uh, having done that, uh, we think the balance will rest with solving crimes. That's that's the argument. I My view is that so many governments are so exercised about this. And every time there's another outrage, uh, whether it's a terrorist attack uh, of one sort or another, or just a, a serious crime, another government says we could have solved this if it had not been for the encryption and they want to regulate. So far, they have never quite come to the point of saying to companies, we will fine you if you sell this product. But I, I think the lesson of the fight over GDPR and privacy is that once governments say, we're going to fine you $3 billion for this, Silicon Valley falls into line. So the question is, when will government be so exercised about this that it's willing to fine a company that provides this encryption $3 billion? I think it's going to happen. And when that happens, won't rogue companies or companies in countries where such laws have not been implemented or open source uh, programmers circumvent this and say, uh, we'll make software that gives you perfect encryption and it's not really anywhere physically. So you can download it. You can send it by a BitTorrent or whatever. Yeah, these are these are arguments that worked when the concept was you're trying to regulate this by with export controls. If you have an approach like GDPR that says, if you're doing business in our territory with our citizens uh, and you sell them a product that we don't approve of, we will fine you $3 billion. No one will sell products in that country that will result in a fine like that. If the only people who are selling encryption that is unbreakable are either motivated by ideology 
and they're not making any money off it, or they're making money serving criminals, that's going to be a relatively small number of people. The products that are being used are going to be much harder for people to use. Uh, uh, and you can prosecute the people who are selling the products for criminal purposes. What happens a lot of times when you put uh, digital protections into place, they hurt the layman user, the average user, because I'll use WhatsApp, even if it has a backdoor in it, because everybody uses WhatsApp and it's easy. But terrorists or criminals will use that unique, specific, uh, quaint uh, software that does give them protection. Yes, uh, but you have to be a relatively large criminal or terrorist enterprise to have the resources to reliably build encryption into your system, as opposed to something that looks pretty good, but doesn't actually work when people examine it closely. There's widespread rumors that some of the terrorist encryption, which looks pretty good, is actually subject to attack. Uh, and from a law enforcement point of view, you know, for the ordinary municipal policeman, ISIS is not their principal concern. Murderers are, drug dealers are, and uh, those folks are not likely to be using these uh, bespoke technologies. So we're marginalizing the poor terrorists and poor uh, criminals and, and helping the big uh, uh, crime corporations. In well, not sense. helping them, but we're, <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not effectively regulating them. I, I agree. Stuart Baker, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.